Welcome to the Carbon Stations podcast, where we speak to some of the leading figures in the emerging carbon industry. Our guest today is Mary Yap, CEO and co-founder of Lethus Carbon, a startup that specializes in removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere via a process known as enhanced rock weathering. Uh, now, Mary, first of all, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, but before we get into what it is exactly that Lethus does and how, I know that your background is in the tech industry, so I'm very curious to know a little bit more about that and what eventually made you transition to the carbon removal space. Awesome, Violet, so good to meet you. And thanks so much for having us on this podcast. We are so excited about everything y'all are launching. So yeah, great question. My background is originally in the tech industry. I actually founded a software company when I was 18 years old, taught myself to code, designed a website, launched it with friends um, and did a small acquisition a year later, then spent the next six years building things from scratch. So really figuring out how do you get your first user, your thousandth user, your millionth user and scaling things in a data-driven way. So um, I come from very much the mindset of building things, getting things live and iterating fast. Along those lines, it was a really interesting transition into the climate tech world for me. Um, I actually went back to school where I studied earth and planetary sciences and geology with the hopes of working on the climate crisis. Um, after my career in software, I realized that, you know, life is very short. The sky was always orange here in San Francisco, which is where I live, and wildfires were happening every single summer. And I just realized I wanted to spend the rest of my life on the most important problem of our times. And for that, uh, for me, that was climate. So I went back to school, um, studied it, and that served led us to where we are today. Wow, fascinating. Um, so let's get into the nitty gritty of exactly what Lethus Carbon does then. Um, how exactly did you found the company? Like what was what were those early days perhaps? Uh, what, they, what did they look like? And uh, why was exactly enhanced rock weathering your carbon removal method of choice? Yeah, great question. So it's really funny. The early days of any startup are a lot of doing things from scratch and figuring out how to go from zero to one. So the earliest days were a lot of calling basalt quarries, trying to find rock dust so that we could scale up our technology and speaking to the actual users, the farmers that we work with on the ground every single day. Um, but how I got to uh, Lithos and how we got to enhance rock weathering is actually a much more interesting um, story here. So. Um, my original co-founders, Noah and Chris, are professors who are absolutely brilliant leading the industry in terms of research that they've been doing for close to a decade now about how do you scale up carbon removal. And there's just a whole massive set of academic researchers who are trying to figure out and tackle the question of how do we make carbon removal a scalable, permanent, durable, transparent industry. And so work has been done for a long time at one of my uh, one of the institutions that I studied at. And when I was looking at the different range of carbon removal pathways, I figured that enhanced weathering was one of the most scalable, cost-efficient, durable options that exist. Um, and so that's that's why we're doubling down on it today. So for a little bit about how enhanced rock weathering works, we are actually inspired by nature. We sit at the intersection of engineered solutions like you know DAC, all the way to nature-based solutions, and we're not quite forestry. What we do is permanent carbon removal that stores carbon dioxide for 10,000 to 100,000 years, but is also very fundamentally scalable today because we don't need to build any new machines or build any new infrastructure. We are piggybacking off powerful processes at the earth naturally already does today, as well as processes that farmers already do today, and then figuring out how to make that transparent, measurable, um, and as efficient as possible. I'll pause there. Okay. Um, and I know that this year, uh, Lethus Carbon won uh, Fast Company's General Excellence Award. So 
first of all, congratulations on that, uh, of course. But it's also a sign of how much potential your approach to carbon uh, removal currently demonstrates. So for our audience, could you tell us a little bit more also about the technology that you use and, and what makes it different? Yeah, so... I think one of the things that's really exciting to us is that fact that we know this works in nature and we're trying to scale up something that we already know is really powerful. So how this works is in the natural environment, um, when carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere, whether it's natural or um, human sources, the carbon dioxide will react with rainwater in the clouds, create something called acid rain. We've all heard of acid rain before. When that acid rain falls down out of the atmosphere and comes down and hits special kinds of volcanic rocks across the world, it leads to a chemical reaction called natural silica weathering, where that CO2 and that acid rain is transformed into something called bicarbonate. And bicarbonate is that chalky white stuff that seashells or oyster shells are made out of, and it's durable. It's very hard to get it out of that form. It can be stored for 10,000 to 100,000 years. Those bicarbonates will then run off off those rocks into the groundwaters and the rivers, out into the open ocean where they can be incorporated into the shells of phytoplankton or sea creatures, or get to the bottom of the ocean where it can be stored for 100,000 years. That process is really powerful. It already removes about 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere every year. And it's done that for four and a half billion years. So it's also nothing new. We know it works. We know that without this one process on Earth, the Earth would look a lot like Venus with greenhouse gases everywhere. We would certainly not be here. So what we do at Lithos Carbon is we're inspired by that process and we are working on speeding that process up by 100 to 1,000 times. So instead of it taking thousands of years for a big block of volcanic rock to slowly capture carbon the way it normally would, we're able to get this process to happen in a matter of human seasons. Um, so very quickly in a matter of a few years, um, and being able to scale up something that the Earth already does is really exciting to us. Again, we know it works. We know the biogeochemistry is really powerful there. The question is, how fast can you get that to happen? So um, that's one of the reasons it's scalable, because it already works and it's uh, biogeochemically efficient. The other reason that it's so scaled when I think folks like Fast Company and partners that we work with are really excited about this approach is that it has a lot of benefits for farmers and it piggybacks off of the existing infrastructure that exists across the globe today. So so all of the different farmers across the world, they already use other rock dusts in order to rehabilitate their farms and grow crops in an efficient manner. Well, the cool thing is that the rock dust that we use at Lithos to permanently capture carbon and transform it into permanent sequestration, that same rock dust can replace other things the farmers already use today, namely limestone dust. And when we do that, we're also improving their crop yields quite significantly. In some cases, we can even improve them up to 47%, which is wild. Um, and so we are able to, again, scale the process with the thing that farmers want, are eager to get their hands on. And that's actually not challenging for them. It's not like a brand new thing we have to try. They've done this for decades, in some cases, hundreds of years with other rock dust. We've just figured out how to make it work even better with this new carbon capturing rock dust. Um, so just to, to make sure that I understand this correctly, uh, do farmers spread this dust on, on their lands, or like across their lands, and just in doing so, it does its thing, it captures the carbon and, and stores it away? It's so the theoretical version is that and in, in practice, it's not quite as simple. So in theory, the idea is that because we're using a crushed up form of rock dust, there's more surface area and therefore it's going to capture carbon faster, right? Like smaller things have exponentially more surface area. But I also like to say it's a little bit like baking, like, you know, there's flour and water and yeast and stuff that goes into bread, but 
honestly, baking is more like a science and an art. And I'm very bad at baking, like never got to it work for me. And it's actually quite similar. You can't just assume you can throw some rocks or rock dust on a field and it's going to capture carbon. In our real studies, we've seen that in some cases it's very, very not efficient. Like it might capture 2% a year, right? So you really need to figure out how to optimize this, how to make sure the temperature, the way that you're mixing into the soil, all that stuff is right so that it captures carbon in an efficient manner. And that's why we focus so much on our technologies, Tac Violet. So we do measurements on every single farm that we deploy today. So Every two and a half acres, we actually go back and get soil samples from before we've applied basalt, soil samples a few months after we've applied the basalt, soil samples and controls for all of our fields so that we can understand exactly what's happening and how to optimize this process. So um, if you just try it kind of like if you just try to bake without really good instructions, you you might not get good bread. We are working on figuring out how do you optimize this to make this as efficient as possible. But in short, yeah, you apply the rock dust to the fields. Um, it can dissolve, release nutrients into the fields for the growers and also capture carbon. That's a theory. In practice, it's a lot, a little more challenging than that. But uh, these measurements uh, that you make, I imagine you 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 have to do this separately with, with each and every farmer that you work with? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's a fun scientific operation to be scaling up, uh, but we think it's really important. Um, so what we have noticed in our research is that if you take two farms right next to each other, same soil type, same climate, gave them the same basalt, like let's say farmer Timmy and farmer Johnny, give them the same basalt, completely different things happen in their two fields. They capture different amounts of carbon, the crop yields are different, et cetera. And that's because these two farmers' families have kind of terraformed the soil over many hundreds of years uh, by adding different fertilizers and manure and just doing different things there that completely changes the biogeochemistry and how the rock will capture carbon. So for that reason, we take samples from every single one of our fields. We do direct empirical MRV is the term measurement reporting verification to make sure creating full trust and transparency for carbon buyers and also for the farmers, right? You don't want to be doing harm. You don't want to be doing things that aren't capturing carbon. You want to make sure that when you're spending all this time and energy moving trucks of heavy rock dust to fields, that you're actually doing what you hope you're doing. So you make what you measure. And that's why we spend a lot of our time working on these measurements at Lithos. So probably the last uh, technical kind of question I ask uh, before we can move on to the other stuff. Do you give farmers recommendations uh, as to what they can change perhaps uh, so that the basalt is more effective for them? Or is there a, are, are there possibilities to offer different types of basalt, for example? Great question. So there's so many different kinds of basalt. We've tested like I think about 180 of them. So, and they're all very diverse in their particle size and their chemistry and their mineralogy. So we think very hard about that. In general, though, it's going to be most effective to use the basalt that's closest to the farmer, right? We don't want to be trucking it halfway across the country. And basalt is the most common volcanic rock in the world. So we use the the volcanic rock dust that happens to be very close to them. And it's it's exciting to them as well because it's a circular local economy. Um, so we, we assume that we're going to use the most close basalt to them. And then we do optimize on a field by field basis. But we also try to make this as simple for the farmer as possible. So what we do is we collect a lot of information from the farmer that the farmer already has. Farmers already soil test every single year because they need to do that in order to figure out how much fertilizer they need to buy. Um, and when they do that, they actually have all this data about the pHs of their farms, or organic matter, the CECs. We ingest that into our own pipeline. And then we look at all that information to understand, oh, how much basalt does farmer Timmy or farmer Johnny actually need to get them to their pH goals for their field? So 
Um, in essence, we look at all the different practices of the farmers do on their fields. We look at the different biogeochemistry of the field, and then we figure out the recipe that will be most ideal for that farmer. And we bring them the basalt rock dust for them to apply at that particular um, tons per acre. So we don't get the farmer to change other things. Like we don't tell them to change the fertilizers they're using or anything about how they're managing the soil. And so we document that very carefully and we use that to inform the best recipe that will fit into their existing practices. Well, it's a very, very individualistic approach. Uh, I love that, actually. Yeah. So I to mention my family are also farmers. Um, so they're farmers uh, and they they grow vegetables and fruits and rice. Um, and one of my co-founders, his family are also farmers in the Midwest. So we take very much a farmer first mentality. We realize we're a carbon removal company, but we think that the key to scaling up carbon removal at a cost effective and you know immediately scalable pace is to actually plug into existing infrastructure and make something that farmers want, love and need. Because if the farmers are the pull here, then you're almost like capturing carbon as a side effect, which is, you know, much more scalable and um, tractable. And obviously we measure all of the work that we do, but we really focus on making that pull from the farmer and making it super simple for the farmer. And farms are not one size fits all. Any farmer will tell you. Uh, what about price-wise? Is it is it more expensive to buy your basalt or like how much more expensive, for example? So we provide the basalt farmers for free. Um, and we're able to do that because of the carbon credits that we sell, which are permanent, high quality, durable. So one, um, in a lot of the regions that we work with today, they're actually running out of limestone or limestone is incredibly expensive because it doesn't exist in their immediate vicinity. So they're like importing in from a different state or something like that. So it's quite expensive. So in one case, like basalt can actually be cheaper, but um, we just cover the cost for the farmer. So it's actually a free input. And from day zero, the farmer is actually saving money on whatever they were putting on the limestone. We also give the farmers a revenue share as well because we work so closely with them to have carefully managed controls and to spread the rock dust in a very specific pattern so that we can measure the crop yields in an area that doesn't have basalt and that does have basalt. And that's important to us for research purposes, at least early on. So we do actually pay the farmer revenue as well while also um, providing the rock dust for free. And uh, just to clarify, the revenue is from carbon credits sold from generated from that land. Yeah. Yes. Okay. These are generated in time or are they sold forward? How how exactly does this work? Oh, great question. So um, there are different models out there in the market, um, but at Lithos, we only do ex post carbon removal. So, but or what that means in like layman speak means we measure the carbon that we've removed before we go ahead and and sell that. Like we, we actually, we don't follow the model of saying like, oh, like we'll just sell forward for things that we haven't um, measured yet. Like you, you, when you spread the rock dust in the fields, um, we don't count that as removal. We only count as removal like six months or eight months or 12 months later when we've gone back, we've measured that the carbon's been removed. So that's the moment at which we deliver carbon credits um, and export one and, and get payments that we then share with the farmers. Okay. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing so much of these details. I read somewhere in a previous interview of yours that uh, you aim to capture 1 million tons of CO2 this decade, so like by 2030. Uh, how do you envision this and what, what what do you think it will take for you to, to reach that scale? Yeah, we think that this is very, very feasible and that in fact, if everything goes right, it's possible for enhanced weathering companies to be capturing up to 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide a year even. Um, 
So there's a lot of potential here for enhanced weathering again. We do believe we are on track and we believe that actually the key to unlocking this market is to again, make this work really, really well for farmers and set up the supply chain in a really efficient local manner. So we think we're on track for that. We're gonna try our very best. And we also know we're not gonna do it alone. Lipis' goal is not to do the 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide, just like 100% us and only in America. Although we focus in America today, we also have partners in many countries across the world um, who are NGOs or governments or smaller startups just like us, but they speak languages that we don't and they can work with the local basalt quarries in their area and the local farmers who also want these crop yield benefits and also want to be contributing to carbon removal, right? So we actually uh, license out some of our technology to support these burgeoning new um, on the ground uh, efforts. And that's another way that we see ourselves powering a billion tons of carbon removal by 2030. There's basalt all across the world in all the continents and there's agriculture in most of them. So there's so much potential there and we're really excited to be expanding our our reach through that pathway as well. That's wonderful, especially this early on in your journey that you're already licensing the technology. That's, uh, that's great news. I'm really happy to hear it. Can you share um, what countries perhaps or what, what regions in the world are already using your technology? Yeah. We are live in some places in Europe. Um, uh, we are looking at some places in Southeast Asia. We're also live in Mexico and Brazil and in some other areas. Um, and the exciting thing for me is that these farms all look very different. They're growing different kinds of crops. The farmers manage their lands in very different ways. And that's really exciting to us. And it's exciting because it provides more research opportunities about how these different management practices um, change like the rate of carbon removal. And it's also exciting to us because the climates are very different and the more hot and humid and subtropical or tropical regions of the world will actually also capture carbon faster with this technology. So we're very lucky to have fantastic partners in these other countries um, and to be learning alongside their farmers and just plugging into regional grassroots practices. That's great. So you get to collect data from all these different parts of the world and, uh, and see how your approach basically works in different parts of the world. Exactly. And the way that I think about it is, you know, agriculture is a worldwide thing, obviously, right? Um, I know we have like GPT and AI revolution and all that fun stuff, but we're not robots yet. We do need to eat um, and we need to figure out how to feed a growing population in a more sustainable way. So agriculture is about 25% of the world's emissions every year. So it's pretty hefty and it's hard to decarbonize. But the fact that we're able to capture so much carbon through this method means you could actually decarbonize agriculture which is just incredibly exciting. So pairing heavy industry, some of the waste, like the natural waste byproduct from heavy industry and mining, and moving that to agricultural lands where it does good for farmers, that seems to us to be a key way of getting to billions of tons of removal this decade. Great. And speaking of uh, farmers, uh, what would you describe the, uh, the mood is towards carbon farming uh, in the U.S.? Yeah, great question. So in the past, all of the carbon farming has been organic carbon. So, and I think some of the pushback for organic carbon is one, it doesn't necessarily pay farmers quite as much as, you know, the stuff that we're doing does. Um, and part of that is because it's not necessarily permanent, permanent. So um, if you go back and you till the land a few years later, if a hurricane sweeps in and mixes up the soil, or if you sold your land and someone else tills it, that that carbon that you think you're sequestering can actually escape from the soils, right? So that can be a challenge. So we actually do inorganic carbon capture. We're transforming carbon dioxide to inorganic bicarbonates, which are locked up like that chalky seashell kind of thing. Um, and pretty hard to get out of the ground, like you actually can't, um, and it goes off to the ocean. 
So it's actually a fundamentally very different and new nascent market for the farmers. Um, if you're getting to how the farmers think about it, that's a really interesting question. Some of the farmers we work with will say, girl, like, I don't eat carbon credits, which is completely like they don't eat carbon credits. They are farmers first and foremost. The land is meant to be passed down for generations and just increase in value and they're trying to improve crop yields, right? So what it really comes down to again is making sure this plugs into their practices, works for them, is showing benefits for their crops um, and that economically it makes sense. You know, margins are really hard in farming. Um, they're really, really hard, especially today with droughts hitting, you know, all across the world and farmers in every region and climate. So farmers are really trying to figure out how to make ends meet, how to increase their margin, how to protect their margin even. Um, and the fact that we are adding more nutrients into their land, replacing the limestone, improving the crop yields, that's really significant for them. So in some cases, the farmers might be saving as much as $90 an acre a year just from replacing the limestone and then um, saving or making even more from the crop yield benefits that they're getting as well. That's fantastic. So since we're speaking about carbon credits, I will inevitably have to ask you about your view of the voluntary carbon market and its potential to mitigate climate change. Um, you've no doubt heard of the recent scandals uh, revolving around low quality credits, uh, particularly um, like the, the Guardian's investigation, for example. Um, so it would be very interesting to also hear your take on this matter. Yeah, I think it's definitely tricky waters and that's why we focus so much on trust and transparency and ex post removals at Lithos. Um, I think it's it's really tricky. I think that everyone is trying to do their best job, um, but it's really hard because science evolves and because these a lot of these systems are nature-based systems or open systems and a lot of them are relying on models as well. So again, that's why we focus on empirical measurements on every field instead of modeling things, but it's tricky to do that at certain scales, especially for forestry. One of the things I'm excited about is I was part of um, a contributing group of carbon removal and, and climate tech founders that wrote a thing recently called the Reykjavik Protocol. So what the Reykjavik Protocol lays out is some fundamental principles that we think carbon removal and climate tech companies should try to follow, um, if they're, especially if they're in the nature-based space, to create transparency and accountability in the markets. Um, so uh, I encourage folks to actually look that up. It's called the Reykjavik Protocol, like Reykjavik Iceland. So that's where we were when we wrote it. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important here is following best available science um, is uh, trust and openness and transparency in what you're doing um, and just being very intentional about the work you're doing and making it possible for folks to audit uh, your activities and audit your science. Um, I think at the end of the day, the tricky thing with carbon credits um, and the scandals that have happened in the market is that ultimately it's not like, um, it's not a car, it's not a physical product, you are selling almost like a data package, right? And so then the rules and the the systems and mechanisms for validating those data packages truly need to evolve with the state of the industry and to create better accountability for buyers. So that's our perspective on it. And we, for that reason, we've gone really, really strongly towards uh, a pretty bold approach, which is all ex post. We only sell what we've measured um, being very open with our signs, publishing things in peer-reviewed um, places and measuring on every single farm. We don't use models. Um, another question about the carbon credits that you generate. Uh, do you sell them on your own platform? Do you use any of the existing marketplaces? Uh, and can you share anything about customers? 
Yeah, great question. So at the moment, um, we choose, we really love working with folks who are very scientifically rigorous. So we choose to sell with a very small number of direct buyers typically. Uh, we were the first enhanced weathering company that Frontier, which is uh, this AMC that includes Stripe and Shopify and Google and Facebook and McKinsey and others. Um, so we were their first enhanced weathering pre-purchase uh, a year ago. And um, we also sell to other tech buyers and other buyers, including Microsoft or some public European companies overseas. Um, so most of our sales are actually almost all our sales are direct. We are live on one platform. Um, we're excited to be on Patch and to be providing some volume there. But in general, we really like to work on educating buyers, working carefully with them to show them all the signs and help them figure out how how does enhanced weathering scale? What is the nascent science looking like? Like what is necessary to create trust and openness and accountability in this space? Thank you. And um, perhaps final question before uh, we wrap up the episode. Um, can you share anything else about Lethos's plans for the immediate future? Yeah, great question. Our goal is to be scaling up this new supply chain that we've created um, to be doing the best thing by our farmers, so testing new soil types, testing new crop types, improving out this model across the world, um, and to be doing whatever we can do to support the broader ecosystem. We know we're not going to get there alone. If you think about it, like one company, yes, could absolutely capture maybe half a million tons, a million tons in the next year or two. But really, we need to get to a billion tons. Like capturing a few hundred thousand tons is like scooping a cup of water out of the ocean. So it doesn't really do any of us any good, right? To make an impact on the atmosphere, we really need to get to billions of tons. So we're very much focused on the long road ahead and how do we build a sustainable industry that's focused on trust and transparency so that the buyers and the VCMs really want to invest in these projects and help them unlock better costs. And we're always focused on also how do we drive down our costs over time? And a lot of that for enhanced weathering is honestly just economies of scale. So how do we get ourselves to um, reliably less than $100 ex post um, for one ton of removal um, and to get to a billion tons as quickly as we can? Wonderful. Mary, thank you so much uh, for for being with us today. It was a genuine pleasure to have you here as a guest. And I wish you and Lithus Carbon all the best. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. Awesome. It was great to speak with you, Violet. Have a good one. If you enjoyed this episode of the Carbon Stations podcast and would like to hear more conversations like this, please be sure to subscribe. We really appreciate the support.